And welcome, my friends, to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you. Also, Steve Vaughn with me on this edition of the program. And today we're going to look at the chosen. Man, is this an evangelical revival, Steve? Is Jesus reviving the country? The chosen got 2.1 million downloads on YouTube right now. That's that's the trailer for season three. 2.1 million views of just the trailer, and uh, apparently the first two episodes of season three is hitting the theaters today. So it's the, probably the biggest thing happening in Christianity uh, in America right now. It's The Chosen. It's a TV series on the life of Jesus, quote-unquote. And uh, it appears that Mormons, Catholics, Evangelicals, they're all together on this. Uh, lots and lots of kudos from Evangelicals and the Mormon sites, as well as the Catholics. They're, they all seem to be pretty thrilled about this series on the life of Christ. And we've, we've touched on this before, but this is getting bigger than it's ever been. Yeah, we, I remember talking about this as me and you talked about The Chosen a while back and how there is you know, Mormons and Christians working together on this movie, on this series. And, uh, and some of the things that are in there are, are a little bit disturbing or something that you need to at least investigate. I mean, I, I've seen, I've seen a, l- a few of the episodes, and the acting is fairly good. But some of the th- you, know, you have to look at the theology. You have to take a look at, is this all the way biblical? And and I know that they take artistic license, and they're having Jesus say some things that he didn't say in the Bible, and that there's things we need to be careful about on this. We, we need to approach this not with a totally open mind, but we need to approach this with maybe an open Bible. What do you think? Yeah, I I, I realize so many people are thinking that uh, these are the horn-rimmed fundamentalists that are stepping into criticism. The people with the gift of criticism are stepping up to the microphone again to criticize. It seems like, you know, we're being unloving to take issue with fundamental worldview differences. But here's the here's the problem. If you believe the wrong things, you you won't go to heaven. Now, that seems to me to be an important proposition to consider. If you believe the wrong Jesus, you will not find the way, the truth, and the life. You will not find the way to the Father, to God. You will not have a relationship with God if you've got the wrong Jesus. So, again, coming back to the original question, is it important to examine fundamental issues relating to the nature of God, the nature of God's salvation, the nature of God's redemption? Is is it, or is it, again, the 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 nitpicky fundamentalists who just they're just never happy <laughs> you know <laughs> you know the type you know the type yeah oh yeah yeah so and, and it's i mean you have to take a look there's a lot of people out there that claim that they worship jesus but the question is who is he whose son is he uh because there's a different jesus for the muslims they they believe in a jesus and the jehovah's witnesses and the mormons and i mean a, a lot of religions out there say that they believe in jesus but you got to define that term you got to define who that is and the director of the chosen has gotten in hot water for referring to his Mormon friends as his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's attempted to defend that at points. Um, and there's no question that the chosen is produced by committed Mormons and committed Christians, quote unquote, the LDS website 
um, I can't remember which one it was, but there is an LDS, Latter-day Saints, Mormon website that refers to one of the executive producers, Daryl Eaves. And in fact, they did a extensive interview with Daryl Eaves. One of the two Latter-day Saint executive producers of the hit show, The Chosen, he knows the show's creator, Dallas Jenkins, has received pushback for choosing to work with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, ergo the Mormons. But, quote, this is what I love about Dallas, said Eves. He was able to see my heart, and he's been the biggest defender of me and my family and my faith background, ergo Mormonism, and he's literally had to endure stuff that no one should endure because of our relationship. Honestly, I'll always be eternally indebted to him because of how he has defended me and my beliefs. Okay, so that's referring to the evangelical director uh, of Dallas, Jenkins, uh, and Daryl Eves, the executive producer, or one of the two Mormon executive producers, is a Mormon, and he's thankful that the evangelical director of this program, The Chosen, has defended his beliefs. That's what he says. Okay, so now, are all beliefs equal? Are all these beliefs equally compatible? Now, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more and examine some of this, especially the recent controversy concerning Jesus's comment in the preview to this particular series of The Chosen, and that was his comment, I am the law of Moses. We're going to look at that in just a moment on the Generations broadcast. Stay with us, my friends. You know, busyness has a way of creeping into our lives. As dads, it can leave us longing for moments of one-on-one time with our sons to simply talk. And those moments can be tough to come by. I get it. That's one of our top goals for our annual summer father-son retreat in the Colorado mountains. To provide quality time for you to connect with your son, can you think of anything more important for your schedule next year? If you are looking for an opportunity to bond, to really bond with your son, then join me, Kevin Swanson, and hundreds of other fathers and sons from across the country next August. But be sure to register soon because we max out the camp every year and we're already filling up. Go to coloradofatherson.com today and choose one of the two weekends available before they are full. Lord willing, I will be there and it will be a great opportunity to meet you and your son. This is your chance to secure the lowest price for this event. So go to coloradofatherson.com and register today. And we are back on the Generations broadcast. Kevin Swanson with you, Steve Vaughn, also on this edition as we examine the chosen. And, you know, it's always a risk to add something to the Word of God, to add something to the narrative. Just a huge risk. Always that little issue brought up in Revelation 22 that just nags the conscience, doesn't it, Steve? And you, you know what I'm talking about. You yeah. know what I'm talking about. I <laughs> yeah. mean, anybody who yeah, adds, yeah. anybody who yeah, takes God away. Will add to him the plagues yeah. that are written in this book. I mean, that's pretty serious. So, ah, it always gives me pause. You know, I'm even hesitant to sing this, the tune, We Three Kings of Orient Are, you know, only because I, we don't know that there were three kings. You know, issues like that. that yeah, I, I have a little bit of a catch to my spirit. You know, we knew, we know they, the, these three magi, or these magi, not the three magi, but the magi brought uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the baby Jesus. But we're not going to add to the narrative. To add to the narrative is a risk. Why? Because 
the narrative is God's story. It, it's, it's the inspired story that comes from the Word of God. Even when we do our uh, Bible story books for children, we're not going to add. We'll make it simple enough that they'll understand it, but we're not going to add to it. So it's always a risk. Also, pictures of Jesus can be an issue, can bias towards his humanity. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Cautious about avoiding pictures of Jesus in our 12-year curriculum. Pictures of Jesus became very big with the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the the Seventh-day Adventists, etc. That was very, very big in the 19th century on into the early 20th century. Then the evangelicals jumped on the bandwagon later on in the 20th century, and that's how you get to the point of not just pictures of Jesus, but uh, representations of Jesus on the big screen. So now let's just take a look at this recent controversy. And I think it's appropriate for us to say, would the real Jesus please stand up? Why? Because, well, I mean, it's pretty important, you know, that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and thereby be saved. Well, we want to be sure it's not, you know, the wrong Jesus. Now, the, uh, the recent controversy is this preview for the third season of the TV series where critics believe that this quote from the Mormon book, 3 Nephi 15, 8, and 9, where the Mormon Jesus, referring to the law, which was given unto Moses, says, I am the law. And, and the quote from the preview for the third season of The Chosen comes out off. And again, this is a very high dramatic moment. This is... This is a big deal when the Jews are coming at him with the law of Moses, and he responds by saying, I am the law of Moses. Third Nephi 15 uh, explicitly refers to Jesus as the law of Moses. He's referring to the Mosaic law, and then he says, I am the law and the light and a few other things. So there are certain dramatic moments in the chosen that I think really need to be examined. And so this Mormon Jesus responds with, I am the law of Moses. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Book of Mormon, but what happens is Jesus, in roughly AD 33, after the resurrection, comes to the Americas and has conversations with the Nephites. I guess you're somewhat aware of this, aren't you? Steve, you've studied this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the... um so the tribe of Joseph uh, came. They they left the covenant uh, group of uh, of Israel. They found a ship. They sailed over to America. They set up a new temple using Joseph as their priesthood. They built the temple. They you know nowhere does it say it offers sacrifices. But that happened. That started in 600 BC. But then Jesus came to them after the resurrection to preach the gospel to the 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 lost tribes of Joseph here on earth which were the there's the Nephites the Lamanites and and other ites that were over here um supposedly and uh you know it there there's it's just there's no archaeological evidence or anything else that actually supports this but Jesus came and preached the gospel and actually ended up preaching a different gospel to uh, the people over here than he did uh, that than than what he was in uh in Israel when he was there. Well, I think this is the first time that I've examined the Book of Mormon as carefully as I have for this segment of the program. And, of course, I've studied God's Word for quite some time. And so, you know, jumping into Third Nephi was something of an experience for me. I just saw a jumble. It was something of a shock to my system. Uh, there's just some jumbling and confusion uh, when it comes to the Matthew 5 passage. Now, the Third Nephi 15 passage says the Old Testament law is fulfilled and has an end. 
the law, which is given to Moses, has an end in me. Now, that's the quote in some of these verses on the front end of 3 Nephi 15. And uh, Jesus actually, in the Bible, doesn't say, I am the law. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I am the law of Moses. He doesn't say, the law, which is given to Moses, has an end in me. He doesn't say that. That is not biblical. That is adding to Scripture. And you will add to the plagues that are given in Revelation to yourself. That would happen to Joseph Smith, or that would happen to other members of the Mormon church, if they would add to the Scriptures, as they're attempting to do in 3 Nephi 15. Jesus doesn't say, I am the law. Now, what, what it does says, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That's John chapter 1. Now, that's a much broader view of Revelation. There's no separation between law and promises in the mind of God. Jesus associates himself with the full revelation of God, not just a piece of it. If you read the real scriptures, you're going to find that Jesus doesn't identify himself to the personified law of Moses. To reduce Jesus to being the personified law of Moses is just plain wrong. And I see it as a direct contradiction to John chapter 1. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth comes by Jesus Christ. Now, the term truth is an all-encompassing truth that would include the promises, that would include the gospel, the gospel given in the Old Testament, and the idea that there's a hard and fast separation between Old and New Testaments and between the Bible and later Revelation is just plain wrong. There's a unity to Scripture, and there is not a mass contradiction between the Old and New Testaments. The plan of salvation of the Old Testament, same as the New Testament. Now, I know that's changed in the minds of so many Christians and non-Christians and cultists over the last number of years, but not so in Scripture. There's a unity to Scripture. There's a truth unity between Old Testament and New Testament. There's a fuller revelation in the New Testament, but the same gospel is found in the Old Testament all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 with the promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, that being the very beginning of the gospel message, the law and the promises, the law and the prophecies are one, and to separate it out and for Jesus to say, I am the law, is just not right. He didn't say that. That's not scriptural. Yeah, you'll find it in the Book of Mormon. You're not going to find it in the Word of God. To add to scripture, just plain wrong. Now, I get the fact that it appears as a central teaching of Mormonism, and a highly dramatized uh, moment in The Chosen, season three. But it's just not biblical. Yeah, Jesus said he was the way. And and so if you're saying that he is also the law, then that would imply that the way to the Father is by the law. And so if Jesus is the way and he is the law, then the law is the way. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, not you wouldn't find the that. case. Roman says the law. You wouldn't find yeah, that scripture. Roman says the law was given so its sin would increase. And that the law drives you to Christ. It's, it isn't Christ. Moreover, if you read 3 Nephi 15, you're going to find the Mormon scriptures equate fulfillment to the end of it. That's not what Matthew 5 says. Again, this is putting Matthew 5 into a blender. And it doesn't help us at all. Jesus fulfilled the law, which means that he obeyed the law. But very clearly, he did not come to destroy the law or to make an end of the law. And that was the way in which 3 Nephi presents it. And that's not the way it was presented in Matthew chapter 5. That's adding to Scripture. 3 Nephi confuses Matthew 5. It's sort of like taking a passage from the Bible and putting it in a blender. There's a surreptitious replacement of words. Conceptually, it changes. It's just not right. 
we, we lose coordination. We, we lose a coherency. Uh, I was rather shocked how slipshod the author of Third Nephi is in producing something that's really not helpful, lacking in clarity. And the clarity that, that is in the clarity that they do present is in contradiction with Matthew chapter 5. Well, Third Nephi would only add confusion to anybody who's trying to understand Matthew chapter 5 or Acts 15, the apostles' relationship with the Old Testament law, extremely un- unhelpful. But uh, let me read from Matthew 5 real quick. Do not think that I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and, and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that, of course, is contradicted directly by Third Nephi chapter 15. In the Book of Mormon, uh, we are not to teach anybody to, to break the least of these Old Testament commandments, which means that the Old Testament law is still binding. Now, the ceremonial law is binding, still has relevant application, but it's fulfilled by a single sacrifice. That's a difference, okay? We have a single sacrifice. We don't need multiple sacrifices. And the sacrifice that fulfills this command that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, the moral laws of Exodus and Deuteronomy are still ethically binding, still ethically normative. They still define ethics and justice for us. We're still called to fulfill the law, which will always happen when we obey the first and second great commandments given in the law of Moses. Romans 13 brings this out. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That's Romans chapter 13. So Jesus did not put an end to the Ten Commandments. Jesus did not put an end to the moral law or even the principles of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament and replace it with his own laws, which is what Third Nephi 15 is teaching us. Rather, Jesus came to fulfill the law, not put an end to it or destroy it or replace it as Mormon theology teaches. Now, that's my summary of this portion of the third season of The Chosen, which I think we need to take to task. Now, we've had a few other issues as well. I think presenting Jesus the way Jesus is presented in The Chosen is just unbiblical. It's not the biblical Jesus. Now, it is the, the, the kind of Jesus that uh, the directors and much of evangelical Christianity would like to, would like to construct for themselves. In one particular scene, we find Jesus blowing raspberries to entertain the kids. Now, is Jesus going to be blowing raspberries? Jesus has a smirk. Jesus is zany. He's winsome. He's, he's nice. He's fun. Uh, huge portions of the narrative are extra scriptural, which seems to me to be very problematic. You get beyond the scriptural data. You create your own narrative, a structure of truth, a system of doctrine a picture of Jesus that is going to be warped. There's no getting around it. Now, there's a difference between Ben-Hur and The Chosen. Ben-Hur is a fictional character, and he intersects with Jesus, but we're not following the life of Christ, learning about the character of Christ in Ben-Hur. We're doing that in The Chosen. And I don't think this looks like the biblical Jesus. Is this the man of sorrows acquainted with grief? Do we feel the heaviness of entering a world torn about by sin under the judgment of Almighty God and destined for hellfire forever? I just don't get that in this, in, in this series. Pictures of Jesus will always bias towards his humanity because that's what you get with an actor. With an actor, you just don't get deity. You're going to get humanity. I mean, it's just the way it works. Why? Why, Steve? Yeah, it reminds me a lot of, uh, you remember the movie Oh God with George Burns and 
John Denver. Mm. Yeah, I remember it. I never saw it, but I remember, yeah, yeah, references to it. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. I saw it. And one of the comments that was made was, you know, George Burns playing God. People are saying, now I could believe in that God. I like that God. And so it was, it's exactly the way it is here. I mean, I, people are going to look at this and say, I like that Jesus. But the question you've got to ask is, is that Jesus the same Jesus as the Jesus of scripture? And if it isn't, it doesn't matter what we like or not. We need to follow the one who is spoken about by God the Father in the Holy Scripture. And here's the problem with pictures. Pictures will always bias towards humanity. How would you convey deity in the picture? You just don't. That's the catch-22 about doing pictures. Here's an honest quote from the producer for The Chosen, at least one of the producers. I think it was one of the evangelical producers for The Chosen. I think also a writer for The Chosen. Uh, you can find this at academic.lagos.com. And I think it's an honest uh, representation of the problem. This is what a producer for The Chosen or a writer for The Chosen has given us. Listen to what he says. With all respect to the Athanasian theologians who, who would advocate for the humanity and deity of Jesus, so with all respect, to the Athanasius theologians of centuries ago agreed upon the hypostatic union, they were not thinking ahead to the problems this would pose to TV writers. In other words, whoa, what's wrong with these people? Why didn't they formulate a doctrine of the nature of Jesus Christ that would accommodate me? I'm trying to put this on the screen. Well, maybe maybe God did not intend for this to be on the screen. Did anybody ever think about that? Here it is. The dance between Jesus' full humanity and full divinity is one of the greatest challenges we face. The way we build balance is by agreeing on the fact that divinity is somewhat invisible, mysterious, etc. So we lean hard on showing the visual aspects of his humanity. He's funny, bloody, tired, weepy, sarcastic, sweaty, exhausted, joyful, teasing, etc. Okay, which I would say about half or two-thirds of those adjectives are just made up. Okay, I mean, we're not finding that in Scripture just plain old-fashioned and unscriptural Jesus. But uh, but he does admit to the fact that it's very difficult to bring the divinity of Jesus onto the silver screen or onto the more reduced-sized screen. Uh, Christ must not be shed of his divinity, even in his incarnation. And if, if we do this, it will lead to imbalance in our presentation of the real Jesus. So as we ask the question today, will the real Jesus please stand up? Ain't going to happen. In the chosen. Now we watched some of the critical scenes, my wife and I, the other day, hoping to see the teaching materialize at a very critical moment. This is very interesting. When Nicodemus bows to Jesus, Jesus said, uh, "You don't need to do that." Now, okay, oh so you don't need to do that. You don't have to do that. Um, um, that's not what he said to Thomas when Thomas said, "My Lord and my God," <laughs> no. and just. After Jesus amazed his disciples by walking on the water, what did they do? They worshiped him. Truly, you are the son of God. He didn't say, oh, you don't need to do that. Um, Hello? Now, of course, the scene was made up. I get that. But so was this statement. And to bring the statement in seems to me to minimize and marginalize the deity of Christ. He never, he never rejected worship. Remember two more examples after the resurrection. Jesus accepted worship from uh, the women, and also from the disciples. They came to him, they clasped his feet and worshiped him, Matthew 28, verse 9. And he didn't say, oh, you don't need to do that. Now, that was probably one of the most offensive scenes I've ever seen, ever, in the portrayal of Jesus in video. I mean, just awful, just awful. Now, th- th- there are some orthodox lines from Christ's teaching in The Chosen. I- I've seen it. But the writers also like to spice in some typical humanist cliches. 
as in, what does your heart tell you? Um, okay, I think Jesus asked Nicodemus that at one point. What, what does your heart tell you? Let's see, that's in John 3 somewhere. Let me look it up. John 3. Can you get that for me, Steve? Yeah, the heart is desperately uh, wicked. Yeah, that would be like more that. Jeremiah, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what does your heart tell you? This follow your heart ridiculousness shows up in this bad presentation. Again, a mix of weird little humanist cliches along with Christian cliches, and the whole thing is a mess. The real Jesus in real time and space maintained his deity and humanity in a distinct but not separate relationship. So how do you portray that? You're not going to portray it, portray it in video. It's just not going to happen. Steve, let's wrap it up. I mean, the bottom line is Christianity is so watered down today. I, I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if evangelicals would find some common ground with the Marxists. Oh, wait, they've already done that. I, 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 I wouldn't <laughs> I, I be surprised if they found some common ground with the woke racists. Uh, oh, wait, they did that too. The Wiccans, the Jim Jones Kool-Aid consuming group or you people who do human sacrifice. I, I, Christianity has turned into some kind of feel-good conglomeration of superficial romantic cliches, and then we wind up with this. I, I, it's a false religion. It's it's just turning into a false religion. I I think you're just going to have to realize that you've got such an insubstantial Jesus. You've got a nothing burger Christian faith that's developed. The faith has died the death of a thousand hand grenades to the foundation. I think Christians need to step back and say, now, wait a minute. Have we lost the essence of faith? Have we lost a sense of gravitas? Have we lost the fear of God? Have we lost the real substantial doctrines of the faith? I think we just need to be asking these questions, you know, especially, you know, hey, I'm just so happy for this director who's been so supportive of my faith background. This is a Mormon speaking. Let's talk about that Mormon background. Uh, I'm, I'm assessing this and comparing eight to 10 different worldviews in my new book, Worldview, what we believe, what they believe, and why they're wrong. And I think it's time for Christians to get bold, stand up for the truth. Uh, compare truth and error and say, now, wait a minute, guys, we can't all be right here. And you know what they believe. Jesus is a created being. That's what the Mormons believe. Jesus is a created being. Jesus and Lucifer were sons of God. There are many gods, and the number of gods are increasing. Suffering a result of man's choice. Man's fall and Satan's rebellion is not the source of evil. Moral agency is the reason for the evil in the world. Man is created with the same essence as God or gods, erring towards dualism. The Mormons teach that man has a natural body and a spiritual body which happens to be the higher and more valued part of man, capable of good. Man's nature was corrupted by the fall, yet his will is still somehow capable of choosing between good and evil and making the decision to follow Christ. At creation, God told man not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to multiply and fill the earth. But until man ate of the tree, he could not become mortal and reproduce. He had to disobey one command to keep the other. No one is born with a sinful nature. Sin is the willful disobedience of God's commands. There are little sins, but only the big sins will block the path to eternal life. Okay, these are quotes I've taken from the Mormon theology. Now, that's not Christian theology. That's not a Christian doctrine of God. That's not a Christian doctrine of the nature of man. That's not a Christian doctrine of the fall of man. That's not a Christian doctrine of the problem with sin. And, of course, you know, we can talk about redemption as well, the salvation by works motif that is dominant in Mormon theology. Yeah, and the, one of the things that they say, because there are more gods becoming, is that as man is, God once was, as God is, 
man can become. And so they believe in the doctrine of eternal progression, that if you are a good Mormon and you keep up your temple recommend and you do all of this, you can go to celestial heaven, and then eventually you can become a God sealed to many spirit wives, reorganize another universe and start the whole process over with all of your spirit wives having a bunch of spirit babies who will eventually get bodies and do the same thing over again. Because it says, as they say in the Bible, they're Lord's many and God's many. And and so that means the Bible, they think the Bible says that there's lots of gods and you, uh, good Mormon, can become God as well. I hope that every single one of our listeners, even if there are Mormons listening, they should step forward and say, now, yes, there are substantial differences. This whole idea that, you know, we evangelicals and Mormons can come together in one big happy family. Uh, when we believe such disparate views concerning the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of Christ, the nature of our salvation, the nature of sin, etc., we, we have diametrically opposed positions on every one of these I mean, shouldn't somebody just step out and say, be honest? Say, actually, we don't agree on anything substantial. The foundations are radically different. The worldview perspectives radically different. The other approach, this ecumenical approach, is just a lie, just deception, just faking it. No, no. Our basic belief system is radically different, one from the other. And friends, that's why I think we need to teach our children the truth. We need to at least be honest with the truth and identify the thesis versus antitheses. And that's why my new book, Worldview, what we believe, what they believe, and why they're wrong. And yeah, it sounds kind of a little, you know, like this jalapeno in the title. Like we've got a little bit of, you know, fight left in us for the truth. And I think we should stand for the truth. And yes, we should speak the truth in love and point out that they're wrong and in love, point them to the truth and say, no, all religions cannot be synthesized. We can't come together as one big happy family because we believe quite different things when it comes to our basic worldview construct. That, my friends, needs to be the position taken. And that's why so much worldview in our curriculum We've got worldviews in conflict for 12th grade. We've got apostate, the men who destroyed the Christian West. We've got epoch, the rise and fall of the West, in which I detail how much of Christianity failed in the Western world in the 19th century, and thus many of the cults developed out of the burned-out districts of revivalism in New York State in the 1820s and 1830s. Why did that happen? Well, I deal with all of that in epoch, the rise and fall of the West, Get these resources at generations.org. This is Kevin Swanson and Steve Vaughn welcome you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.